Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 327. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Now, remember what I said last week? (laughs) Delivery of... My little hut headquarters, Starships over headquarters is coming sometime this morning. I think it's sometime this morning anyways. So if I'm recording this and you might find that it kind of just goes off for a little while and then I come back all excited. So I'll press record today and we'll see how it goes. But this kid is as excited as a little puppy. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have Synthetic Voices by Jimmy Rogers, the fantastic Jimmy Rogers, looking out all the other audio fiction out there on the internet for you. Then we have the main fiction, which is Puppa by David D. Levine, a fantastic story. That is all coming up in Starship Sova's show 327. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, last week as well, we had the the name, we want a name for the fantasy podcast. And if you remember, I put up the poll and I mentioned it and I scattered it out on social media and put it up there. And the vote, the voting stopped on Sunday, I think it was. And we have the votes in. So I will tell you, we have a name now. If you don't know, if you haven't seen on social media or anything like that, we have a name. In last place, but by no means least... <laughs> Legends of the Lords and Ladies, that came in last place, and the one who was, actually was pretty dismal. There was only five people voted for that one. Next up was the Fellowship of Fantasy Fables, which had a vote of 13, which took over 7% of the voting. Then the next one was the Footin... It's even hard to say, man. The Footon of Fanciful Figments. That had a 26 votes, which was 15, well, 15.8% of the vote. 
Now, this is where we're kind of getting into very close ground. You know, the next three are incredibly close all the way through. Do you know what I mean? But in third place was, with a count of 39 votes, 23% of the overall rating was Myths, Magic and Meaning. So it became down to either Free Flight Fantasy or Farfetched Fables. And let me tell you, there was one vote in it. One vote. Unreal. And the winner is, the, the new name for our fantasy podcast is the one we've always had. Farfetch Fables came in at 41 votes against Free Flight Fantasy, which had 40 votes. And I actually dropped Josh an email just to say, right, that's the, that's the name we're going with, which is the bloody one. And Josh said, you know what? He says, he, the last, he says it was on Sunday and it was very close to closing. He just put his vote in. He didn't know when the closing was. And he says, that's, if anyone's going to, shouldn't have been that one. Josh is your man to blame. Josh is the man. Because honestly, all the way through them few days, Free Flight Fantasy and Farfetched Fables were just like inching ahead. And then the other one, then the other one. And it came down to like, say, one one vote, one vote, wow. So it is Farfetched Fables. That is the new name for our fantasy podcast that we are now kicking on. And actually, you know what I mean? I like that. Honestly, I'm like that. I sent it out on, like say, I mentioned it as soon as I got the vote in, I put it out on kind of Facebook and Twitter and that. And if you're not, you know, if you don't know, follow us so you kind of get some news and that. I put it out and I didn't even have the domain name, didn't even have the Twitter name, didn't have the Facebook thing or what, you know what I mean? Just didn't have nothing. And it was like, oh, 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 <laughs> So a little bit of back scurrying there to get all that sorted out. Didn't even have an email address. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> so that's all sorted out as well. Farfetch Fables. And we're having a kind of, <clears throat> we have a, a start date as well. So hopefully, you know, if all's going well, we're aiming for the 10th of April. That is when we're going to kick off with Farfetch Fables. And what we're going to do as well is have Farfetch Fables take over. Yes, yes, bury your heads in the sand, diehard science fiction fans. We're going to have Farfetch Fables take over Starships over for somewhere in the future, you know, building up to that and have a, a fantasy dedicated show, one show. <gasps> the nerve of it, the baggage. Oh, <laughs> they'll just be weeping into the face of guns. Terrible. But yes, we are. We're going to have a fan. We're going to hand over the reins to Nick and everyone who works on the, the fantasy podcast. And she will just give you a little kind of taste of what's happening. And actually, I'm going to try and get other things in there as well, which is what the fantasy podcast will be all about. So that is coming up as well. Yes. Doris is going to play a fantasy. Oh, my God. Yes. Hang on to your hearts. So without further ado, then, I think we better get into... Is that the door? Wait on. <laughs> I've got myself all chewed a bit here. Let's get into Jimmy Rogers with his synthetic voices. Jimmy, sir. Hey there, Sophonauts. I'm finally back. Welcome to Synthetic Voices. I'm Jimmy Rogers, and I'll be your guide through the intriguing world of podcasted speculative fiction. Each month, I put together a list of my favorite short fiction from the previous month and share it with you here 
along with some of my personal thoughts. You can find the show notes and links at scienceismagic.com. Right off the bat, a little something that I'm very excited about, The Secret World Chronicle is back for another season. I've discussed it before on the show, but essentially it's a sprawling superhero universe where alliances are made and broken from season to season. The writing is a little campy sometimes, but there is generally enough grit to help balance that out. Also, the reading is done by Veronica Giguere, an excellent narrator that you've probably heard elsewhere in the podcasted fiction world. They're in Season 7 now, and I do recommend going back to the start. But if you've been balking at audiobook prices recently, the back catalog might be a blessing in disguise. Alright, without further ado, let's jump right into the top picks for January 2014. First up is Utrias Cosmi by Robert Charles Wilson. It was featured in Clark's World Magazine's January issue and was about 62 minutes long. Here is an epic story that reminds me a lot of Rapture of the Nerds, for which there is still no audiobook, by the way. It's the end of the world, and our female protagonist is swept up into a technological construct. She explores artificial intelligence, post-singularity time dilation, and some of the unfathomable types of existence that live beyond our conception of the universe. A beautiful story with a reasonably approachable character, not always so in this genre, and a grandeur that will leave you in awe. Next up is The Thing About Shapes to Come by Adam Troy Castro. This was featured in Lightspeed Magazine's January issue and was about 47 minutes long. Here is a bit of weird fiction if there ever was. A girl finds herself in the increasingly common position of carrying a child to term and discovering it is little more than a solid polygon. The feelings of the girl and her parents about the new child are interesting, and we get a nice view of world events. I do feel that the story lacks a little in the action department, and it might drag if it wasn't such a bizarre tale. Fortunately, the very end is quite a head-turner, completing the circle of the plot. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this one in the comments. Another great story from last month was Ilmet in Ulthar by T.A. Pratt, a.k.a. Tim Pratt. It was featured in Podcastle, episode 296, and was about 55 minutes long. This short story, a side tale from Pratt's Marla Mason series of novels, follows a snarky, spell-slinging sorceress as she endeavors to free the mind of a delusional author. She must battle his monsters and try to reach him before his madness escapes a magical asylum in which he is imprisoned. I enjoyed the dialogue and almost pulpy sensibilities in this one, but like some pulps, it never felt like Marla had much chance of losing the battle. In fact, I'm not entirely sure there was really any conflict throughout the story. Even so, if it's fluff, it's an enjoyable piece of fluff, so pick it up when you need an hour away from the world. The next story on my list is Flash Bang Remember by Caroline M. Yochim and Tina Connolly. It was featured in Starship Sofa, episode 320, 
and was about 42 minutes long, found at time code 41 minutes. The term vat-grown clone gets thrown around a lot in science fiction, but rarely does a story spend as much time on the psychology of those clones as this one does. Drilling down into the center of this trope, we find a young girl surrounded by the vat-grown. All of them are adults, but few are very much older than she is. They do have one major advantage over her, a flashed-baked childhood. In fact, they all have the same childhood. Now the pressure is on her to model a new childhood for the next generation, and she's feeling the strain. I really enjoyed a lot of the elements in this story. The plot is surprising in most of its twists and turns. The characters are well-defined, unless they are intentionally two-dimensional, and the details of the place and culture are quite good. It's a well-rounded piece for lovers of deep space adolescent drama. Next is The Serial Killer's Astronaut Daughter by Damien Angelica Walters. This was featured in Strange Horizons, January issue, and was about 35 minutes long. Many perverse situations have been dreamed up by authors over the years so that characters may be set into them and watched as they squirm. As already hinted by the spoilery title, our astronaut protagonist finds herself in a bit of an awkward situation when a death row inmate turns out to be her father. This story reminds me of The Master Conjurer, which was a top pick in October. In both, the hero finds his or herself in the center of a media typhoon that pounds relentlessly on their privacy and their sanity. Now, in The Master Conjurer, the unhappy magician is hounded continuously by the press. You would think our astronaut would have an easier time of it, being in space and all, but no, the author does a nice job conveying just how vexing low-res video feeds and an email account can be. There were a lot of great ideas about identity floating around in this story, and I'm glad they came together into such a solid piece of literature. My final top pick this month was Sandcastles by Desirina Boscovich. It was featured in Podcastle episode 294 and was about 57 minutes long. Ethereal stories about imaginary places don't often get my gears whirring, but Sandcastles was just grounded enough for my want. In it, we follow three young people as they embark on a bohemian road trip to find golden sands. These aren't merely the golden sands of a sexy Mexican beach, but sands washed in from a sunken city. The implied mythos really appealed to me, and the characters had a peculiar whimsy that I found endearing. I particularly enjoyed the foil of the piece, our protagonist's former roommate, an artist with his head in the clouds. I'm not sure how broadly this story will be received, but it stuck with me for a few days after. Always a good sign. Next we have a small oversight. I'm not going to take up too much time with this, as I'm trying to shorten the podcast, not lengthen it, but I do want to mention something that I overlooked last month. It appears that for whatever reason, I totally failed to consider two stories that I really enjoyed listening to in Lightspeed Magazine. These were Dead Fads by Marine F. 
McHugh, and Invisible Planets by Hao Jingfang. This was translated by Ken Liu. The former is about an art student who studies animated dead people. The latter is a series of tall tales about bizarre planets. Check them out if you need just a few more audio escapes this month. Let's wrap things up with our featured stories this month. If you're curious, the featured stories are basically things that don't fit quite into the top picks, but I still want to give them a shout-out on the show. The first is The Ugly Chickens by Howard Waldrop. It was featured on the Drabblecast, episode 310, and was about one hour and seven minutes long. Some of you may know that I am occasionally active within the Washington Science Fiction Association, or WISFA. If you've been to any of their Capclave events, that is, DC's premier science fiction convention, then you may also know that their mascot is the Dodo. Well, this story might well be their mascot as well, as it focuses on that bizarre, extinct, flightless bird. Now, personally, I don't think dodos are terribly interesting creatures, but I find the people who care about them very interesting. People research them, hypothesize about them, and generally obsess. Perhaps it's because they're so odd-looking and we're directly responsible for their eradication from the globe. Anyway, this story comes out of that obsession, with a graduate student set on proving that dodos spent some time in the American South before they disappeared. It was a Hugo finalist, too, so there's that. I suggest you check it out. The next featured story is actually two stories. This is a Warning by M.J. Pack and The Voice on the Radio by Carlos Rivera, which was featured on the No Sleep podcast, Season 3, Episode 16. No Sleep stories are tough to review on the show because they are very short, many are bunched together in one episode, and often, frankly, they can be pretty terrible. Nothing against the podcast, it's just that when you're collecting community-driven content, sometimes you have an off week. So I'm glad to be able to recommend this episode, which has two excellent stories. This is a Warning is about a fear addiction, and The Voice on the Radio is a predictable, but somehow still captivating story about a message from the past. Our final featured story this month is Scanners Live in Vain by Cord Wainer Smith. It was featured on the SFF Audio Podcast, episode 249, and was about one hour and 36 minutes long. Here's another story that stuck with me for days after the telling. It's a tale of pitiable cyborgs and their duties as captains for ships between the stars. They must live without feelings, emotions, or even senses, returning to a human existence only once a month, if that. Now, a new advance may make them all obsolete. The description of their society and the pain of space, some kind of cosmic horror associated with interstellar travel, is engaging. It's apparently part of a series of instrumentality stories, so I'd be excited to hear more of those in the future. There are more details, but once again, the SFF audio team did a nice job rehashing the story in a subsequent episode. Well, that just about does it for Synthetic Voices this month. 
Remember that all of our authors, narrators, and publishers providing their work for free online would really like to get paid. So give generously to your favorite fiction podcast this month. If you'd like to contact me, drop me a line at jimmy at scienceismagic.com or leave a comment on the show notes. Also in the show notes, you can find a link to our Facebook page. Like us or leave your comment there. Synthetic Voices is written and produced by Jimmy Rogers, with a special thanks to Charity Helton for formatting the show notes. The MP3 is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial 3.0 license. The logo design is by Thomas Waldering. The song See You Later is by Pittix, and Wired But Disconnected is by Duckett. Our closing quote for the month is by Annie Prue. I find it satisfying and intellectually stimulating to work with the intensity, brevity, balance, and wordplay of the short story. Stay warm out there, and I'll see you next month. I'm plugged into the world, I'm wired, wired but disconnected. And there you go, Squire. Thank you so much. Nice to get you back on board. Like I say, it was a little bit dry. We had a dry spell with fact articles, but it's nice to see people opening around again. That's lovely. Jimmy, thank you so much. Now, just before we get into, you know, the main fiction, oh, it's nice to plug Sofa Notes. Please come over there and support the show. Yes, £6 a month, private members club. If you're into writing, I have just put up kind of one of my writer's workshops, and this was kind of the video and the lectures, you know, and it had Jeff, Jeff Vandermeer, and Vandermeer in there. It had Peter Watts and Nancy Cress. And like I say, it was just, I remember that, you know what I mean? What, what what you could learn from that's fantastic. I mean, yeah, this is, you know, Peter Watts's title of his talk is Why Science Fiction is Too Important to be Left to the Scientists. You know what I mean? <laughs> Great talk you give there. Unlocking Your Creativity by Anne Vandermeer and Creating and Maintaining Tension by Nancy Cress. And there was, again, there was questions and answers as well. And that's all that's in video and you can download it as well. There you go. Wow, come on, man, be honest. Very nice. So it would be lovely to see you over there. Like, say, support the Starship Sofa. That would be fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Or if you just want a kind of one-time donation, that would be hey, just as good. You know what I mean? We've got, a, got another little sibling. You know what I mean? We've got another little sibling on the way. Yes. So we've got, we've, our family's getting bigger and we need support. Please, please, please. Right, main fiction then. We played a number of stories by David, and he's lovely as well. And the neat thing is, as well, David's narrating this story as well, and David's got a cracking little narrating voice. Do you know what I mean? So, David, go on there, sir. I'll give you a little heads up about David. David D. Levine is the author of over 50 published science fiction and fantasy stories. His work has appeared in magazine of Asimov's Analog, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and the realms of fantasy. He has won or been nominated for awards, including the Hugo, Nebula, Sturgeon, and Campbell. He lives in Portland, Oregon, and co-edits the fanzine Bento with his wife, Kate Yule. His webpage is daviddlevine.com. And like I say, David's just give a little bio that David is a cracking writer. Do you know what I mean? And he'd be a bit shy about his awards and that. This man is just pushing out some great stories. So, David, it's just lovely to get this story. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is... Very proud to present Puba by David D. Levine.
Pupa by David D. Levine A spasm of pain made Kisho drop her forelimb brush. Zenekatekki Kisho always ached all over, from her mandibles to the tips of her third pair of limbs. Pain and hunger were the natural states of a Shakuthi juvenile. Pain from the constant rapid growth and hunger for the vast quantities of food she needed to sustain that growth. But this latest spasm was the bone-deep ache that meant her skin was getting to be too small. She had already molted seven times and knew this feeling well, but this next molt would be her last as a juvenile. After this molt, she would pupate for three months, her ugly juvenile body replaced by a gleaming adult. She was thrilled. She was terrified. But for now... She had a job to do. Ksho bent down and scrabbled with clumsy, weak, two-fingered hands for the brush on the rough cloth of the floor, wishing she had an adult's hands, gleaming three-fingered structures of chitin and bone capable of powerful grasp and fine manipulation. Finally, using both of her first pair of hands, she managed to regain the brush and resumed her laborious progress to her parents' Zenecotech's grooming chamber, waddling along on stumpy little hind limbs, barely capable of supporting her growing weight. The delay probably saved her life. Cachot did not scrape at the door before entering the grooming chamber. The scraping board was for adults. Juveniles came and went, as their duties required, with no more notice or need for permission than the air that cooled the corridor. She paused for a moment with one hand on the door latch, making sure she had a firm grip on the brush, and at that moment she heard voices from within. The unexpected sound makes Sho freeze, her skin tingling, an instinctive response honed over thousands of generations. Surely there could be no other adult in Zenecotech's grooming chamber at this hour. The hour of grooming was inviolate, a time of quiet contemplation, but life had been strange ever since they had traveled to this cold and desolate place, and it had only become stranger in the last few months. Ksho worked the lower door latch, slid the door open a crack, and poked one eye into the room. Zenekatik was not alone in her grooming chamber. Takacha, the head of the expedition, was there as well. Neither adult took any notice of Ksho's eye peeping around the door's edge. Ten or twelve of Ksho's sisters were also present, buffing and polishing their parents' gleaming limbs and torso. None of them seemed to be alarmed by Takacha's presence in Zenekatik's grooming chamber, but Ksho told herself she shouldn't expect her younger siblings to be as observant as she. She was the eldest, after all, nearly ready to pupate. "'You should have realized,' Takacha was saying, "'that you wouldn't be able to maintain this deception forever.' As she spoke, a flavor of apprehension drifted through the slightly open door to Ksho's fingers. Both adults were nervous, verging on terrified. Why? Don't do this, Takacha. Zenekatik was holding perfectly still, most unlike the usual rolling and preening of an adult being groomed. You can stop this madness now, before any permanent harm is done. I'm authorized to offer clemency if you halt the operation immediately and surrender. Takacha chuttered, antennae lifting as though Zenekatek had just said something funny. Clemency. She raised one hand, and Ksho's already sour stomachs soured still further with fear, as she realized Takacha held a weapon leveled at Zenekatek's thorax. That explained her parents' unnatural immobility. 
You'll have to offer far more than that to make abandoning this operation worthwhile. One of Ksho's sisters ran out of grooming wax and headed toward the wall niche for more. Neither adult paid her any heed. Think, Takasha. What you've done so far is only a level three offense, but harming an agent of the Grand Nest means death by suffocation, and if I don't check in, there will be an investigation. Oh, you will check in tomorrow, at twelve past the hour of waking, just as you have been doing every sixth day. Zinnikatik's eyes twitched at that statement, and the flavor of anxiety that pervaded the room intensified. Yes, we've been monitoring your communications, and we're able to reproduce them as well. You won't be missed until after our job here is done. Zinnikatik bristled. A bad clutch of eggs always hatches a bad swarm. One of your compatriots will betray you to the Grand Nest in exchange for leniency. All during this conversation, Ksho's mind raced. There must be something she could do to help her parent, but her soft little voice could never be heard more than a few rooms away, and even if she ran for help, no adult would listen to a juvenile. Even the structural failure alarms were deliberately out of reach of her stubby little limbs. Everyone knew that juveniles, with their undeveloped brains, could not be trusted with such a responsibility. But Ksho was almost an adult. Anyone could see how close she was to pupation. Surely she could use that fact to convince someone to come and help. Just as she was about to slip her eye out of the door and ease it closed, Takacha buzzed, None of my compatriots would ever betray me. This nest is as one. This nest is as one. Takacha was saying that every single adult on the expedition was part of whatever it was that Ksho's parent was trying to stop. Something illegal. That meant that even if Ksho managed to get one of the adults here to believe her, it wouldn't save Zinukatik. Ksho trembled, immobilized by fear, her eyes still peeping into the room. The Grand Nest is mired in tradition, Takacha continued, the weapon still pointed at Zinukatik. We are the future. What we are doing here may be prohibited today, but the children who hatch from eggs not yet even laid will hail us as the saviors of our species. And then, to Ksho's horror, Takacha squeezed the weapon's actuator. A sharp, acrid flavor filled the room as the weapon discharged its load onto Zinekatik, the powerful acid eating through chitin and muscle and revealing the bone beneath. Zinekatik hissed in pain and lunged toward Takacha, but she fired again, the acid spewing right into Ksho's parent's face. With a horrid, gasping hiss, she collapsed, eyes and antennae dissolving into a smoking ruin at Takacha's feet. Four of Ksho's siblings had also been caught by the acid and writhed hissing on the floor. The rest stood stock still, ancient instincts holding them rooted even as their parent, the only adult in hundreds of leagues who would take care of them, lay dying within easy reach. Ksho's own body froze, trembling in terror. Takacha was already slipping the weapon into one of the folds of her garment and striding toward the door where Ksho stood. Ksho barely managed to pull her eye from the door and move out of the way before Takacha reached it. She brushed past Ksho, taking no notice whatsoever of the trembling juvenile. A moment later, Ksho heard the nest's weather door scrape open, then shut, leaving her alone with her dead parent and dying siblings. The hideous flavors of acid and spilled bodily fluids suffused the air. Ksho, too, was doomed as were her sisters, even those who hadn't been struck by the acid. 
the offspring of a deceased adult of egg-bearing age were usually adopted by close relatives, but Zenecatech had no relatives at all in this tiny, isolated encampment. Ksho realized now why this was so. She had been one of the Grand Nesp's wasps, an undercover agent hidden in the nest of criminals. None of them would adopt even the smallest, most innocent grub of Zenecatech's. Left alone, the younger ones would starve within days. Ksho, nearly an adult, was capable of feeding herself, but without a parent to watch over her during the long months of pupation, she would surely be eaten by predators or succumb to parasites. It would be so easy to die, to sit here, petrified with fear, until thirst or starvation or predators took her. Every instinct told her to hold still until the danger had passed. But Ksho knew the danger would not pass, not by itself. Something would have to be done, and there was no one but Ksho to do it. It took her many long, panting breaths to convince her body to move. To edge one limb forward was an effort. To haul her ungainly, gravid body across the floor was an agony. And hunger, always present, clawed at her stomachs like a predator. She must be her own adult, and her sister's adult as well. She pulled in her eyes for a moment, comforting herself with the darkness, before resuming her painful movement. The sharp flavor of her own fear soured her stomachs, but she persisted, returning to the door through which she'd seen her parents' death. Nothing in the room moved. Ksho's sisters sat as motionless as Zenecatech's acid-mangled body. Even those that had writhed in pain now lay still. Bitter grief lay strong on Ksho's fingers. Ksho will find help, she told her unmoving sisters, though she didn't know how she would manage it. Even the shape of the number Ksho in her mandibles reminded her that no matter how close she was to pupation, she was still only a juvenile, unfit to bear a personal name or to use the pronoun I. Sekocho, she said, addressing the eldest of her younger siblings. After Ksho leaves in Ekatik's nest, you must seal the doors behind her and do not let anyone else in until she returns. Can you do this? Sekocho does not know, she responded, her voice very small, only her mandibles moving. The flavor of fear seeped from her. She was only a little bit more than two-thirds Ksho's age. You must, Ksho hauled herself to Sekocho's side and stroked her trembling skin. You must. Sekocho will try. Ksho stayed beside Sekocho for a moment longer, taking comfort from the touch herself as well as giving it, before dragging her heavy body to the nest's weather door. She closed the door behind herself, satisfied to hear Sekocho's mandibles working at the edge of the door to seal it. The seal would not withstand a concerted effort, but would hold off anyone who tried to enter out of idle curiosity, at least for a day or so. She turned away from the door and took in a great breath, letting it out with a shuddering hiss through the spiracles on her sides. The expedition had set up on the side of a rocky, inhospitable mountain, far from the nearest outpost of the Grand Nest. The individual nests of the expedition members, all criminals, Ksho realized now, except her own dead parent, lay scattered across the gravel-strewn slope wherever their occupants had thought best to build them. 
A cold wind blew down from the top of the mountain, making Kshō shiver. What should she do now? What could she do? No one here would help her voluntarily. There was nothing to eat here outside of the central refectory, and only adults could requisition food from there. Stowing away on the lone air transport that connected this site with civilization would be impossible. Kusho had often overheard the pilot complain about how every minimum of weight was accounted for and double-checked. She could, she supposed, slip a written note onto an outbound transport, but to whom? And who would believe a note written in a juvenile scrawl? But there was one other way out of the encampment. Ksho considered her options. A long moment's thought convinced her that the few alternatives were no better. Tasting determination as well as fear, she shambled toward the center of the encampment. The portal was a ring of pale glowing metal, standing upright, twice the height of an adult. Its bottom edge hung a span above the ground, apparently unsupported. Any one or anything that passed through the ring went elsewhere. Some people and things came back. Armed soldiers surrounded the ring, ready to defend the encampment and the planet against any attack from the other side at a moment's notice. They paid no attention to Ksho, though, as she waddled across the stony ground toward the ring. Juveniles were often seen running errands and carrying messages to and from their parents on the other side. Ksho herself had done so several times a day since the portal had been opened a month and a half ago, and all juveniles looked alike to adults other than their own parents. She remembered how pleased everyone had been when, after months of fruitless searching, the portal had finally connected to a world with breathable air and people worth trading with. A very strange people, but people nonetheless. Ksho hoped they would be willing and able to help an orphan. Using all four hands of her first two pair of limbs, she boosted her swollen body over the ring's lower edge. Immediately, the suffering of her overgrown body seemed to double as she fell into the other world's gravity field. The gravity here was actually only a little higher than what she was used to, but its leaden pressure seemed to emphasize the grief that weighed her down. The air, too, seemed heavy, chill and dense, with unaccustomed metallic and astringent flavors. And then there was the weight of the hunger in her stomach, which dragged her down and sapped her energy. She realized she should have eaten something before she left her deceased parents' home. How many other mistakes had she made? Would the armed soldiers shortly come charging through the portal with orders from Takacha to detain and dispose of her? Ksho straightened herself and moved away from the portal as quickly as her stumpy limbs could carry her in this strange environment. The ground here had been covered with a prickly bed of tiny plant stalks when they'd arrived, but after the first half-month, many paths had been trampled into bare dirt. Eventually, the dirt had been replaced by a dark and gritty surface that tasted like a cross between fuel and broken stone. This side of the portal had its own defenses, towering two-legged aliens clad in their own version of body armor, huge hulking vehicles flavoring the air with iron and solvents, towering walls of rough artificial stone topped with coils of dragged metal. But the alien defenders, too, were so used to juveniles appearing from the ring that they paid her little heed. As always, she was required to pass through a portal that hummed and tickled her insides, but otherwise her progress was unimpeded. 
Beyond the defensive walls stood an even larger structure. Smooth, sheer cliffs of gleaming white stone pierced at regular intervals with hard-edged, angular openings. This structure, which the aliens called the White Nest, was the center of the aliens' government and was the reason the portal had been shifted to this location from the point of initial contact. The structure was entirely flat planes, straight edges, and square corners, except for an imposing forest of cylindrical columns that stood in a semicircle before the structure's weather door. This enormous pile of stone was the dwelling of just one alien, one who held more power than any on this world, or else it was the workplace of hundreds of aliens and home of none of them. It wasn't clear. Perhaps there were translation difficulties. There were always translation difficulties. Show was seized again. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And by a spasm of pain, her body stretched nearly to its limits and her aching bones squeezed by the higher gravity of this place. Her stomachs, too, throbbed with renewed hunger, and whether the white nest was dwelling or workplace... It seemed the most likely place for her to find something to eat. She moved toward it as rapidly as she could manage. As she hauled herself along the path, she passed several of the towering aliens, all of which stared at her with predatory intensity. Their disturbing eyes, dark circles within light circles, each looked like the opening of a weapon pointed directly at her. Their movement accomplished by a shift of weight from one of their two lower limbs to the other, emphasized their intimidating height and made them seem even more huge and ponderous than they were. After a long time, she passed through the half-ring of imposing columns and approached the giant structure's weather door, not a proper door at all, but a pair of huge, flat, angular plates that hinged open at one side. She had passed through this door many times before, but every other time she had been expected and one of the aliens had been here to open it for her. Now the door stood closed, silent and untended. Ksho realized she'd been a fool. 
She had stepped through the portal to an unknown world, throwing her own fate and that of her siblings into the strange hands of alien beings with unknown motivations. They might be just as likely to eat her as to feed her. Suddenly an alien appeared on the other side of the door, peering at her through one of the transparent plates in the door's substance. Cho froze in terror. This alien was different from any of the others Cho had met. It was no bigger than Cho herself, both shorter and smaller around than any other alien she had seen. It was dark, like a shakuthi, instead of pale like most of its kind, which made it seem a little more familiar and also made its disturbing eyes even more prominent and strange. And the tendrils on its rounded head, which curled in tiny dark ringlets, were gathered into tufts on either side. Each tuft was bound at the base by a few turns of some soft, sparkly material. Was this unusual tufting some indication of caste or status? The alien and Ksho stared at each other for a time, and then the alien leaned forward and pushed the door open a couple of spans. Moving the huge door was clearly an effort for the small alien, which made Ksho feel a little sorry for it. It seemed nearly as unsuited to this enormous heavy world as Ksho herself. And then the alien spoke. Its voice burbled and lapped like a stream flowing over pebbles, an almost pleasant sound, higher and softer than others Ksho had heard. A moment later, a device strapped to one of the alien's limbs spoke in an approximation of Ksho's language. Speaker equivalence assertion. Alexa, proper name. Identify listener possessive existence query. The second translated phrase was one Ksho had heard before. It meant, what is your name? Still petrified with fear, she struggled to reply. Zinniktiki Ksho, she managed to stammer. The alien's head drew back, and its eyes narrowed a bit. Ksho had no idea what that might mean. Zinniktiki, proper name, possessive, three, ordinal existence, donal name, it took Sho a moment to recognize her own dead parent's name as rendered by the alien's mandibles and then the translation device, and another moment to puzzle out the sense behind the translation. Zinnikotik's third is not really a name. And, indeed, Sho was not a proper name, an adult name at all. It was just the number three, indicating that Sho was the third of Zinnikotik's offspring. The first had failed in the egg, and the second had died as a grub. Then there had been three more deaths before Sekosho, number seven. Zinnikotik's luck with offspring had not been good, and now there would be no more siblings at all. Ksho tasted grief, but could not give in to the emotion. How to explain all of this to an alien? Ksho is not a name, but is Ksho's designation, she said. Ksho is a juvenile and does not have a name like an adult's. After Ksho finished speaking, the alien held its upper limb close to one side of its head. Those curved protuberances had to be its ears, while the device burbled softly in the alien's language. It seemed to consider for a moment what it had heard, then replied. Listener existence assertion, merely juvenile, came the translation. Speaker equivalence assertion, listener. You're just a juvenile, the alien meant. I am the same. That explained why this alien was smaller than the others, and why it was willing to speak with Ksho. Ksho relaxed a bit, allowing herself to breathe but still not moving from the spot. 
Perhaps the young alien would also be willing to help one like itself. Ksho is hungry, she said. Ksho needs food for herself and her siblings. After hearing the translation, the alien suddenly bared its teeth, a vicious surprise of white against the dark skin that made Ksho freeze again. The alien's flavor, salt and iron and flowers, told Ksho nothing about its emotions. Then it spoke. Speaker, bring, conditional, listener, building, within. Ksho didn't know why the verb was flagged as conditional, but the statement was accompanied by an unmistakable gesture. The alien pushed the door open wider and stood to one side, leaving enough space for Ksho to enter. Ksho hesitated, trembling for a long time before convincing her limbs to move her forward. Everything in this place was so strange and frightening. But the alien, despite its inexplicable habits and the language barrier, waited patiently until Ksho could coax herself into entering the structure. As the door closed behind her with an ominous clack, Ksho immediately regretted her decision. The air inside was even colder than outside, and the light here was unnatural and flickery and made everything look strange. "'Speaker, bring, future, listener, toward, food preparation, place!' the alien said, and moved off toward the interior of the structure. Ksho envied its gait, which was more of a leaping bound than the larger alien's ponderous motion as she dragged herself through the heavy gravity, but the promise of a food preparation place drew her forward. She'd eaten the alien's food before, at ceremonial negotiations, and knew that it was not harmful and could even be nutritious and delicious. They came to a place of hard surfaces and bright lights, all ceramic and metal. Many large aliens were here, all working diligently at incomprehensible tasks, and the air tasted of a hundred different things, some delicious and some disgusting. As soon as the small alien entered, one of the larger ones stopped whatever it was doing and bent down to the small one's level. They warbled at each other for a while, both of them aiming their strange eyes at Ksho between glances at each other. Ksho fought to relax. Nothing good would come of freezing in fear. She was deep inside the alien's nest, and if they meant her harm, it was already too late to escape. But she didn't think the small alien intended any harm, and some of the flavors in the air here made her stomachs clench with renewed hunger. She had no idea how long it had been since she'd eaten. The larger alien went away, then returned with a large, flat, angular metal plate, upon which were arranged small dabs of many different substances. Ksho tasted each dab with a finger, saying, Ksho likes this one, or this one tastes awful, for each. The large alien didn't have a translation device on its limb, but the small alien interpreted for Ksho, and a short while later the large alien brought out bowls with larger quantities of some of the foods that Ksho had liked best. She had no idea what any of them were, but some were absolutely delicious, and she had soon eaten her fill. Ksho would like more of this one, and this one, please, to take back to her siblings. There was some difficulty with the translation, but eventually she made herself understood, and the large alien brought her two containers full of food, warm and flavorful even through their sealed lids. Ksho arranged the two containers in her panniers and spread her upper limbs wide in what she hoped was a universal gesture of thanks. The small alien led Ksho back to the structure's weather door. With full stomachs and a heavy load in her panniers, Ksho moved even more slowly than before, and the ache in her limbs reminded her that she must pupate soon. As they made their way, they conversed in a halting and tentative fashion. 
If you were a juvenile, where is your parent? At least, that's what Kshow thought the alien was trying to ask. The translation device kept insisting that parent was plural. Kshow's parent is dead, Kshow replied. The alien expressed unhappiness at the news, though its flavor didn't change. Who takes care of you? No one takes care of Kshow now. Kshow must care for herself and her siblings. She didn't mention, didn't want to think about, the fact that when she pupated, she would probably die, and her helpless siblings along with her. She was just trying to cope with one day at a time. That seems cruel, the alien said. The alien's statement surprised Ksho. She hadn't thought that an alien might have any concern for the fate of one Shakuthi juvenile. Then she considered the fact that the small alien was the only juvenile she had seen in all the time she had spent on this planet, and all the adult aliens seemed to treat it with astonishing deference. Juveniles here must be very rare and precious. Shakuthi juveniles are not important, she said. They hatch in great numbers and are put to work. Only a few survive to adulthood. That took a long time to explain. The alien's reply took even longer for Cho to understand. So long, in fact, that the two of them had to sit down together at one side of the long, narrow room they were moving through, the hard floor tasting of stone and solvents. Large aliens moved by as they talked, staring at the alien and Shakuthi juveniles in conversation, but Ksho barely noticed, because what the small alien said demanded so much concentration to understand. The aliens, it seemed, had several different tribes, or clans, differentiated by lightness or darkness of skin. The small alien, with its dark skin, belonged to a clan which had in the past been considered inherently inferior to another pale-skin clan. Speaker, possessive, clan, believe, denial, past tense, passive, person, plural, the alien said, meaning my clan was not thought to be people. But members of the dark clan, together with some members of the pale clan, had insisted over and over across many generations that they deserved to be treated like people, like Shakuthi adults rather than like juveniles. After a long time, they had seen some success. In fact, the small alien's parent, a member of the Dark Clan, was the leader of this entire part of the planet, a very powerful alien indeed, with authority over pale and dark aliens alike. This was not a perfect situation, the small alien said, but it was an improvement over what had come before. And then the alien said something that seemed very important to it. Important Dark Clan leader Ye Se Yak Sung, proper name, right, past tense, famous ancestor song. Then its strange eyes widened, it leaned forward, and its burbling water voice deepened in pitch. Its words had a formal cadence, though they didn't sound like any ancestor song Cho had ever heard before. Speaker equivalence assertion, significant person. Speaker equivalence assertion, significant person. Speaker equivalence provisional assertion, impoverished. But speaker equivalence assertion, significant person. Speaker equivalence provisional assertion, juvenile. But speaker equivalence assertion, significant person. Speaker equivalence provisional assertion, untranslatable. But speaker equivalence assertion, significant person. 
Speaker equivalence provisional assertion, small. But speaker equivalence assertion, significant person. It went on like that for a while. Cachot didn't understand all of it, but the message was clear, and it was obviously very meaningful to the alien. The ancestor song ended with yet another repetition of speaker equivalence assertion, significant person. Then the alien bent, laid one hand on Cachot's flank, and said, Listener comprehension query. Do you understand? It was the first time Cachot had been touched by an alien, but she didn't flinch away. The touch was firm but not hostile, cool but not cold. It didn't seem to fit with the alien's lengthy assertion of its own significance. Show understands, she says, that you are a significant person. Upon hearing the translation, the alien seemed to become upset, standing up and turning in a small circle before sitting down again. This time it placed both hands on Kshou's skin and leaned in even closer. Listener emphatic, it said. Listener emphatic, equivalence, strong assertion, significant person. Meaning, you, it is you that is significant. Ksho tasted her own surprise and disbelief. Ksho was not significant. Repeat, imperative, speaker-possessive statement, the alien said. Repeat my statement. The command was clear, so Ksho complied, although she didn't believe it. Ksho is significant. The alien closed its eyes and struck itself on the forehead with both closed hands, an extremely peculiar gesture. Listener equivalence, strong denial. Three, ordinal. Listener equivalence assertion. Name, speaker, personal pronoun. They went back and forth on that one several times before Ksho understood what the alien meant. You are not number three. You are I. Repeat, imperative, speaker, possessive, statement, comprising, name, speaker, personal pronoun. The alien said... I am significant, Ksho said. It was the first time she had ever used the personal pronoun I for herself. It was wrong, ungrammatical, inappropriate, a violation of propriety. It made her feel strange even to form the words without meaning them. Repeat, imperative, statement, the alien insisted. I am significant. It felt a little less strange the second time. There was, after all, nothing extraordinary about the sentence itself. Ksho had heard sentences like that all her life, just never from a juvenile. I was for adults. But Ksho was almost an adult. Ksho was not only nearly ready to pupate, as the constant ache in her bones reminded her, she was responsible for the care of her siblings. Repeat, imperative, the alien said again. I... Am significant. This time she began to believe it. This time I began to believe it. Ksho, I was acting as an adult and must take on adult ways of thinking and speaking. I am significant, I said again. I I. Listener, equivalence assertion, significant person, the alien concurred, tipping its head up and down. Ksho realized that much time had passed, and the containers of food in her panniers had grown cold. 
I must return to Kusho's to my siblings, she said. I, I said. Affirmation, return imperative, remember imperative, listener equivalence assertion, significant person. I will remember. I am significant. I hauled myself up from where I had sat for so long on the alien's hard floor. During that long conversation, Cho's hunger had begun to return, and the ache of impending pupation had grown even stronger, but I knew I knew Cho's siblings would be even more hungry. I had to hurry. Returning through the portal, seeing the encampment again, Cho felt herself returning to old ways of thought. The air here, which had felt so cold before, now seemed warm and full of familiar flavors. The normal gravity was a great relief, but the weight of the two containers of alien food in, in my panniers reminded me that I was now an adult in terms of responsibility, if not physically. I could not relax into old habits. I had no adult to feed and protect me or my siblings. And yet there was no denying I was still a juvenile. My bones ached, my limbs twinged with every step, and adults gave me no more notice than they would a rock or a patch of lichen. This could be useful to me, though. I could perhaps survive through invisibility, like any other small, camouflaged creature. I came to Zinakotic's nest and tasted the edges of the weather door, finding only Sekocho's flavor there. My relief was so strong I was sure my siblings inside could taste it from there. Sekocho, I called. Ksho is here, with food. Soon enough, Ksho was inside, and Sekocho and the rest fell on the strange food with mewlings of desperate need. There wasn't very much left when they all had eaten, but it was a start. Perhaps Ksho would return to the alien planet soon for more. After Ksho, after I had eaten, I looked around. My siblings, always busy and diligent even without adult direction, had already cleaned up the ruins of Xenocotic's body, leaving only a dark and pitted acid stain on the floor where she had died. I tasted grief, but my responsibilities were pressing. The whole time I had been making my way from the portal to Xenocotic's nest, I had been formulating a plan. Takacha and the other criminals would be happy to leave my siblings and I alone to starve, but if I could find a way to inform the Grand Nest that their agent Xenocotic had been killed... They might send other agents, and those agents might take us back to Xenocotic's relatives. It wasn't much of a plan, but it was the best I had. Whatever I did, it had to be done quickly. The rapidly intensifying pain along my back told me that I would have to pupate within a day or two. I didn't know what would happen if I tried to resist the impulse, but it felt as though my skin would burst right open. But how could I contact the Grand Nest? Right before killing my parent, Takacha had said something about Zenitkotik checking in with the Grand Nest at twelve past the hour of waking every sixth day. Thinking back, I realized that early every sixth day, Zenitkotik would retire to her meditation niche, a common enough habit, but not one she had practiced before coming to this encampment. Searching the niche, tasting every corner and cranny, I soon found an area where Zenitkotik's lingering flavor had a slight tinge of anxiety and anticipation. It was a subtle difference, not something anyone other than her own offspring would ever have noticed. 
but I examined the area closely and eventually found a cleverly concealed panel closed by a hidden latch. Behind that panel, a small compartment contained a note spool and a communication device, both strongly flavored of my late parent. The communication device was designed for an adult's fingers, and I was unable even to open the case. Frustrated, I opened the note spool and ran its tape through my fingers. The sequence of flavors I read there astonished me. Zinnicotic had discovered here, and documented with her usual meticulousness, an extensive conspiracy to violate the laws against exploitation of less advanced species. Takacha and her fellow criminals were representing themselves to the aliens as the duly authorized representatives of the Grand Nest, offering wondrous technology in exchange for large quantities of alien artworks, genetic material, heavy elements, and other valuables. But the promised technologies did not exist, except as convincing fakes. The criminals' plan was to extract as much from the aliens as possible, and then close the portal, leaving the aliens with nothing but some complex-looking but worthless devices. After closing the portal, they would poison the channel to the aliens' planet, preventing the Sukuthi or any other species from ever opening a new portal and discovering the crime. The last item on the spool indicated that Xenocotic was nearly ready to transmit her notes to the Grand Nest. Takacha must have discovered this somehow and killed her to prevent it. I sat there with my parents' last written words between my fingers, already hungry again, with my bones aching and my skin feeling ready to split. Under normal circumstances, I would be curling up in my little nest already and preparing to pupate. These were not normal circumstances. If I pupated now, I would die, and my siblings with me. My parents' death would go unreported and unpunished. Worse, a whole planet of innocent aliens would be swindled and cut off from civilization forever, and the crime might never even be discovered. I hated to think of that happening to the juvenile alien who had been so helpful to me, and I was the only one who even knew about it. But what could I do to prevent it? I was only one juvenile, small and weak and powerless. I had no relatives to protect me, no adult would listen to me, and I couldn't even work my parents' communication device. Then, as I sat lamenting my fate, I remembered what the alien had made me say. I am significant. I am significant, I told myself. I didn't really believe it. Deep down, I knew that no matter how close to pupation I was, I was still only a juvenile. But acting as though I believed it was the only way I had any chance to stop all those awful things from happening. I must go out again, I said to Seko Cho, tucking the note spool and communication device into my panniers. A strong flavor of confusion came from her, and I realized it was because I was speaking as an adult. But just as though I really were an adult, she said nothing and waited attentively for further instructions. I decided to keep using I. It would help to keep Sekocho and the others from panicking. You must seal the door behind me, as before. I will return with more food as soon as I can. When will that be? Sekocho asked, not unreasonably. I thought for a long time before answering. I do not know. I may not return at all. If I do not, you must take care of your siblings and yourself as long as you can. Do you understand? Yes, Sinekotic, Sekocho responded, unthinkingly calling me by our parents' name. 
I left as quickly as I could so that my own flavor of grief and self-doubt would not infect my siblings. Outside the weather door, considering my options, I realized that my best hope was to return to the alien planet and try to find the juvenile that had helped me before. Its parent was a leader of its people. If nothing else, the information might prevent the aliens from being swindled, and I might be able to return with one more load of food before I had to pupate. But as I moved across the encampment toward the portal, I realized that pupation had advanced much farther than I'd thought while I'd been reading Xenocotic's notes. My limbs were swollen and stiff, my vision was beginning to cloud, and the pain along my spine had turned into an itching line of fire that felt ready to tear open at any moment, and the faster I tried to go, the worse the pain got. I am significant, I told myself. I matter. I can make a difference. But only if I keep going. I dragged my swollen body across the stony ground toward the portal. As I passed through the ring of soldiers guarding it against alien invasion, one of them eyed me warily and said to her neighbor, That juvenile looks sick. Maybe we should put an end to its suffering, the other soldier responded. As the soldier raised her weapon, I froze in fear. I had not considered my appearance or what any considerate adult would be expected to do upon seeing a juvenile in pain. No, I managed to cry despite my paralysis. A whiff of surprise leaked from the soldier's armor. No juvenile, especially a sick one, would ever say such a thing to an adult, but she hesitated. I, uh, Cachot is delivering an important package to her parent on the alien planet, I gestured to my pannier. Cachot must do this before pupating. I waited, trembling. The soldier seemed uncertain what to do. After an eternity, the other soldiers spoke. Oh, let her go, she said. If she dies over there, no one will ever know. Somehow I managed to will myself into motion. The soldier's weapon continued to follow me, and I expected a gout of acid to strike me at any moment, but finally I found myself on the other side of the portal. I never expected to feel relief at the cold, the strange flavors, the leaden weight of the other planet's gravity. That relief was short-lived. Now I had to find the alien juvenile. The path to the huge stone structure seemed infinite as I hauled myself along it. The aliens who passed did not react any differently than they had before. They probably did not know the difference between a healthy and a sick juvenile, and I was glad there were no Shakuthi present. At one point I felt a tearing pain in my side, followed by a slow trickle of fluid down my flank, but I pressed on, not wanting to know what it looked like. At last I came to the structure's massive door, which stood firmly closed. There was nothing like a scratching board. I had no idea how to signal for entrance. Then a form loomed up behind the door's transparent panels. For a moment I felt hope, but then I realized it was just an alien adult, one I'd never seen before. It did not appear to have a translation device on its limb. I needed the alien to bring me to the juvenile, but how? And then I remembered the very first thing the juvenile had said to me. Speaker equivalence assertion, Alexa, proper name. It had made no sense to me at the time, but I realized now what it had meant. I am Alexa. Alexa, I said to the alien at the door. I repeated it, and the alien opened the door. I continued to repeat it until the alien departed, then returned with another, which had a translation device. 
I must speak to Alexa, I said. It is vitally important. I sat on the cold stone outside the structure's weather door for a long time, unmoving from pain and fatigue more than from fear. Something tore open on my other flank. I waited. And then a whole crowd of aliens appeared. The juvenile Alexa, followed by several others with dark skin like hers, and several more. I dug in my pannier and brought out the note spool, and I explained as best I could what my parent had learned. Another alien brought a larger, more complex version of the translation device, and that made the conversation a little easier. Many other aliens came. When I brought out Xenocotec's communication device, two of the larger aliens immediately moved in and took it away from me. I was too tired to argue. After a long while, they brought it back, saying they had examined it and determined it was safe. I explained how to open it, and one of the aliens who had taken it away tried, but in the end it turned out that only Alexa had fingers small and strong enough to work the catch. I showed Alexa how to feed the notes bowl into the device's reader, and how to initiate transmission. "'You must take the device through the portal,' I said, "'and transmit from there.' After so much talking, my voice was hoarse and whispery. The aliens argued a long time among themselves— I didn't follow the argument very well. I was drifting in and out of consciousness, but I gathered that Alexa was the only one who could manipulate the device, and the other aliens did not want it to go. Eventually, though, Alexa bent down to where I could see. My vision had nearly failed. Speaker, travel, future, and return, future, it said to me. Listener, wait, imperative, at this location. I will wait, I said. I didn't really have much alternative. Alexa left, accompanied by four of the largest aliens. I slumped where I sat. Some of the other aliens asked me questions, but I was barely able to respond. I realized I had done all I could. I crawled into a corner and began to wrap myself, beginning with my tail and working up. I had waited almost too long. My skin had stiffened to the point that I could barely reach my tail with my mandibles. I did the best I could but it took much longer than it was supposed to. I hoped my adult form would not suffer because of the delay. While I worked, many other aliens came, pointing devices at me that flashed and beeped. I ignored them. I was nearly finished, just my head and one limb unwrapped, when Alexa and the others returned. My vision had failed nearly completely by now, but Alexa's flavor, different from the other aliens, though equally strange, had become familiar to me. Transmission, completion, achieve, past assertion, Alexa said. Grand nest, acknowledge, past, transmission. Grand nest, send, assertion, soldiers, apprehend, future, criminals. Thank you, Alexa, I sighed. Listener status, query, Alexa asked. I am pupating now, I whispered. You must watch over the pupa for three months. Do not let predators eat it, or let it get too warm or too cold. The soldiers from the Grand Nest will tell you what to do, and will care for my sisters. Speaker, talk, future assertion, with listener in three months. I paused, enwrapping the one remaining exposed limb. No, Alexa. The adult that emerges from the pupa will not be me. She will know the things I have done and learned, but I am told it is like reading a spool about the ancestors, not like a memory. 
she will be a different person. You will need to introduce yourself to her. Alexa and the other aliens discussed this for a long time while I continued wrapping myself. Covering my own head was the most difficult part, but I relaxed and let my instincts guide me. Speaker equivalence assertion, great sadness, Alexa said. Do not be sad, Alexa. The new adult will be glad to meet you. She will enjoy hearing from you what we have done together. Adult feel, future assertion, pride about listener. Listener equivalence assertion, significant person. I would never have been significant, I said, if you had not taught me to be. I tucked my mandibles against my neck, feeling the wrappings begin to harden, and let myself relax into the long sleep. There you go, David. Both times, thank you so much for the story, and thank you so much for narrating. Wow, man, go on there. Thank you. Don't forget, copyright is David's. I don't want you going out there and trying to do a little bit kind of hooky-dooky with it. It's David's. So, I think that's it. Starship's over. The knock has not come just yet. No, man, I hope he's not going to phone again. I will, I will take pictures. And let you see, and if you like, you see, come over and like follow us on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. Actually, I put more on Facebook because Twitter get winds us up, to be quite honest. But I'm still there and I still do it. But there we go. Speaking of pictures, oh man, that project I've been harping on about, but not telling anybody about it. I had to get some photographs done of kind of scenery and you know, kind of round where I live, but I also had to get some like a, um, a new kind of portrait photograph, you know, profile photograph, because if anyone's kind of seen, if I've even, you know, I've had like a lock, stock and smoke and barrel one for ages. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it was taken in 2004. <laughs> this little kid is carrying a little bit more weight than I was then. That's for sure. And I'll tell you what, mind you, you know, you just, I just see that picture like on profile, you know what I mean? It's just there and you, you never take a real notice. But I had to put a new one up on Facebook. And I'll tell you about that in a second. But when I, I kind of went in and I thought, oh, profile pictures. And then it, you see this thing big. Man, I was young. Just, you know, that's, I think it was 2004 when, you know, 10 years ago. Have aged. You know what I mean? Running this show in. <laughs> it's took its toll. Man, just like, and they see this new one. You know what I mean? And you think, you know. <laughs> You know, you normally kind of, you've had a hard paper round, Tony. Bah, man. And it just look, and I'm going for the Ernest Hemingway look. You remember how bad he looked in the end? You know what I mean? He's grizzled old. You know, I've got that kind of look I feel with. But you've got to kind of stand there and get the photograph taken, man. And big shout out to Darren. Oh man, Darren had to come over from Bly. Local Darren Local has been, and it's actually lovely, you know what I mean? Because it's nice that Darren's been kind of listening to the show for oodles of time and still kind of kicking around and does stuff. And he does all the photography on the crime side, you know, on Jack's side. Jack kind of gets his, and we're talking about that as well. I kind of, I says, Darren, oh, what's what's it like? Because Jack gets that kind of raw picture what Darren's taken and basically just just totally destroys it. And I says, what's it like? Is it like killing your babies kind of thing? And he says, well, sometimes he's pretty, you know, 
aggressive with his styling techniques. But it looks, when you see the work over on crime, what Jack's doing, it is that, oh, crime pictures, you know what I mean? It's all this kind of heavy kind of embossed logos, stamps, you know, and kind of images and that. So, but it was nice, to, honestly, it was lovely to get get Darren over from. And, you know, he kind of... <laughs> <laughs> he's from the he's on the other side of the river, you know, Darren, young Darren Hammond, and it was nice because the air's sweeter over this side. Of the, there's no getting away from it, you know. There's a certain, you know, and you could say he got a little bit giddy when he got off the metro. Do you know what I mean? And it was the same metro, you know. It took us. I was just saying, Darren took us back because it was the same metro Kieran used to get. When, you know, in the early days of Starship Sova, I would pick him up from that metro station about half eleven that night, would drive a mile home to my house, he'd sleep on the set there, and we'd record the show the next day. Yes, we did even that. We had Skype then, but we didn't know how to use it. So I think you had to come 10 miles from Newcastle every, every whatever. God, I can't remember what day it was. We should still release on a Wednesday, so I can't remember. But anyways... And it was it was quite bizarre, you know. Got Darren came out that that metro station as well. So we went along the coast and took some photographs of scenery and everything like that. And poor oh man, profile. Do you know what I mean? You just kind of, and then you see the pictures. You think, man, just what a state. Do you know what I mean? These years haven't been good. So a little tweaking in, you know, Photoshop the Helen back. <laughs> It's what I've got there. What did I, Darren, a big thank you for that. There you go. Do have a look at it if you want. <gasps> Ten years. The years ain't being kind. It's a hard life steering this ship. <laughs> right, that is it. I've got to go, man. I'm sure it's going to come soon. I hope you enjoy this week's show, and I'll see you next week. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.